We come now to the word of our Lord as we conclude a sermon series that we started just last week on redeeming geography. And yes, there will be a lot of names and places again. I invite you to open your Bibles in the book of Numbers. And we will read by, from the end of chapter 33, verse 50, until the end of chapter 34. <clears throat> Numbers 33, from verse 50 until the end of 34. Once again, it's a long journey, but as the Lord sustained the people of Israel through the wilderness, He will sustain us as we come to His Word. Thus says the Lord, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan, as defined by its borders. Your south side shall be from the wilderness, wilderness of Zin, alongside Edom, and your southern board, border shall run from the end of the Salt Sea on the east. And your border shall turn south of the ascent of Akrabim and cross to Zin, and its limit shall be the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it shall go on to Hazar Adar, and pass along to Asmon. And the border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and its limit shall be at the sea. For your western border, you shall have the great sea and its coast. This shall be your western border. This shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall draw a line to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall draw a line to Lebo Hamath. And the limit of the border shall be at Zadad. Then the border shall stand to Ziphron, and its limit shall be at Hazar Anan. This shall be your northern border. <clears throat> you shall draw a line from your eastern border from Hazar Anan to Shephem. And the border shall go down from Shephem to Riblah on the east side of Ain. And the border shall go down and reach the shoulder of the Sea of Chinnereth on the east. And the border shall go down to the Jordan and its limit shall be at the Salt Sea. This shall be your land 
as defined by its orders, borders all around. Moses commanded the people of Israel, saying, This is the land that you shall inherit by lot, which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine tribes and to the half-tribe. For the tribe of the people of Reuben by father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father, father's houses have received their inheritance and also the half-tribe of Manasseh. The two tribes and the half-tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land for you, to you for inheritance, Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for inheritance. These are the names of the men. Of the tribe of Judah, Caleb the son of Jephunneh. Of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Chislon. Of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Boki, the son of Jogli. Of the people of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod. And of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Camuel, the son of Shiphtan. Of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnak. Of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan. And of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ehihud, the son of Shilomi. Of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amihud. These are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. I wish I had the perseverance of Darius McCollum. As far as the story goes, Darius McCollum has been utterly obsessed with trains since he was a small child. McCollum grew up in New York City, and by the age of five, when most people are still not 100% where the bathroom is, he had memorized, so the story goes, the entire New York City subway system. Shocked at how little respect and admiration this earned him with the other kids, McCollum obsessions grew still until in 1981, at the age of 15, when he stole a train. I hope you're asking yourself, how does one go on stealing a train? Well, he didn't exactly steal it. He sort of borrowed it. McCollum quietly hijacked the train and drove it along its regular route as it was supposed to be. He was so good, in fact, that the passengers had no idea that anything was wrong. Some say they only became suspicious when they noticed that the driver was doing his job in a timely and professional manner. <laughs> For this adventure, remember he was only 15, McCollum was eventually caught and charged. However, instead of enjoying a one-time joyride and devoting his energies to, I don't know, maybe a public tra transportation career, he kept stealing actual real-life trains. McCollum has been arrested at least 30 times and incarcerated for about 19 of those 30 times. All this energy and effort just to pretend to do a job that the people who actually do it probably hate.
Then I tell you this. Tomorrow morning, I will, I will wake up, look at the monthly schedule that Maria and I keep at the door of our fridge, and think what I have been thinking frequently since learning about the story that I just told you. I will think, man, I wish I had the perseverance of Darius McCollum. And admit it, as you hear about it, you wish probably that you had a little bit more of that in you too. Especially in light of what we have been learning from the geography of the book of Numbers since past week. Last week, as a reminder, we compared our Christian life to the people of Israel's journey from Egypt to Canaan. For some of us, of whom I'm the foremost, I must quickly admit, if the Christian life were literally a journey on foot, I would soon give up midway. And unfortunately, even as a symbolic journey, you could say, we all sometimes feel like sitting down a little bit or quitting altogether and turning back, don't we? The destination seems too far. The sun seems too hot. My feet hurt. If only we were as obsessed with the promised land as Darius McCollum was with New York City trains. Tonight, as we wrap up our Redeeming Geography series, we will learn more about how Israel botched their journey and how Jesus redeems us from likewise failure. We will learn about our struggles to press on to what we were called to, and we will be comfort, comforted, I hope, by the gospel of Jesus, our only hope of safely arriving home. In summary, tonight we will learn that despite our complacency, Jesus guarantees our inheritance. I'll say that again. Despite our complacency, Jesus guarantees our inheritance. We'll see that in three points. First, we will see that we have a part to play in our inheritance. Again, we have a part to play in our inheritance. As we saw last week, we find in Numbers 33 and 34, a God-inspired travelogue of Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt to the brink of the Promised Land. At the beginning of our text tonight, they are in the plains of Moab, about to cross in the land. They have completed their week of work, their six groups of six places, as we saw last week, and in front of them is the seventh place, the place of rest, a shadow, we said last week, of theirs and our eternal rest in the presence of our God. In the meantime, however, and this is where our text begins, verses 50 to 56 tells us that they had still some work to do for the Lord. God tells them that they have one final battle to overcome before rest. When they cross the river, they have a mission. First, they must drive out the people living in their land and their man-made idols and altars to false gods. Second, they were to take control over the entire land and settle in it, for it was theirs 
to take care of. Finally, they were to divide the land according to their tribes. It will not be a free-for-all of finders keepers, no. This conquest of the land fulfills God's promises of old to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that their descendants, descendants would inherit a place of rest. Therefore, the land would be fairly divided according to the size of each tribe of the twelve sons of Jacob. Big tribe gets more land, small tribe gets less land. And then as you look at this mission, the latter part seems pretty fair and even obvious. Take the land, because it's their land, sure. Then divide it according to their number and their size. Sure, makes sense. But what about that first part? About driving out people and destroying their religious artifacts and religious sites. God is telling them very clearly. The Canaanites and their idolatry will be a constant temptation for them to inevitably, inevitably turn their backs on the God who saved them from slavery. The God who gave them this land for inheritance. The Canaanites, as the text say, if left there, would be as barbs in their eyes and thorns on their sides. They would be a stone in their shoes, a fingerprint mark in their glasses, a loose boat on the suspension of their car, with that constantly rattling and clunking in their souls. As one commentator said, there was no room for compromise or peaceful co co coexistence with the Canaanites, for that would inevitably lead to a life of pain for Israel. But wait, there's more. If you fail to drive them out of the land, God says in verse 56, I will do to you as I thought to do to them. You will be driven out of the land if you don't do it. Does that remind you of something? If you are here this morning, maybe something you have been hearing for, I don't know, I don't know past two years in the series on the book of Kings. Does that remind you of a story that without any fear of giving spoilers to that series, ends up sooner or later in exile. But if they were to avoid the terrible threat of being cast away from the presence of their God, they had to drive out the Canaanite idolatry. If they were to avoid the fate of our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, of being cast away from meeting God face to face, they had to pursue their God-given mission to take control of Canaan with Darius McCollum-esque perseverance and intent. And this, Christian, I'm here to tell you tonight, is your call to, to persevere, to drive away idolatry and false worship from your sight. If Israel's journey in Numbers is a picture of our journey in this life, God is telling you tonight, do not bow to the false idols of the land in which you live in. Otherwise, he says, I will cast you away from my presence. So on the one hand, we are called to resist adopting the same external 
idolatrous patterns of the places we live. We must refuse to bow to, bow to the gods of money, power, and comfort that so tenaciously surrounds us right now. But on the, on the other hand, though, the inclination we all feel to bow at the feet of these false gods comes from an internal disposition we all have for greed, pride, self-righteousness. And today, God calls you to resist and to drive all these idols and sinful inclinations away from your life. And the question then is, is that possible? Can we so resist sin and the world that we fully inherit God's promises to us? Is that up to us to do? We'll see that in our next point. Secondly, the second thing we have to see from this text tonight is that our complacency prevents us from holding fast to our inheritance. Again, our complacency prevents us from holding fast to our inheritance. We see this in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 34. And yes, here we go again. Another list of places we never heard of. How thus, you might think, this geographical overview of ancient Palestine affects my relationship with God. And you already know my answer, don't you? A lot. It has a lot to do with your relationship with God. In these verses, God tells the people that the borders of their territory should, what the borders of their territory should be when they finish claiming the land of Canaan. As simple as that. You get a map, it begins here, it goes until here, then make a left, goes here, then take a, another corner, it goes there, another corner, and then he goes this full circle. And if you read again, you'll see that in the very beginning he talks about Mount Hor, and at the end we've done the full circle and we are at Mount Hor again. However, and unfortunately for them and for us, if you follow the narrative, you keep reading the Bible, and you read the book of Joshua, the account of the, where we find the account of the military campaign to actually go there and claim the land, we read verses like this, which I'll read to you. Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So they dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. Joshua 17, 12, and 13. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Did you catch what happened with the Canaanites? They persisted in dwelling in that land. And this, those two texts that I, that I just read are just examples. There are way more. And then you keep finding these words to describe the Israelite campaign. Could not, did not. Even after all God's warnings against complacency, it looks like the Canaanites were the ones with Darius McCollumish determination to hold fast 
to their land. Compromise becomes Israel's refrain. They were even strong enough to subdue their enemies, but the submission came through having them do by forced labor the menial, menial jobs that no one wanted to do. Isn't that practical? Still, the borders described here in chapter 34 reveal something even more troubling if you look closely and then if you look at many other places in the Bible. Israel, in all its history, never, I repeat, never conquered the entire territory assigned by God. Israel's territory was never entirely fully this borders that we just read. Saul couldn't. David didn't. Even Solomon, in all his glory, did not conquer all they were supposed to. And of course, as he would, if even Solomon did not accomplish it, do you think Jehu, Joram, or Jehoran did it? The many kings of Israel were as rebellious and unfaithful as their fathers who wandered in the desert. Their unbelief and their complacency led them to settle instead of pressing forward. Yet, as we saw earlier, they were called to be persistent and not compromise. They were chosen by the Lord to be His treasured possession, something that we read all throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, this is the same charge that God gave the spiritual Israel, His church. For example, we read in Titus 2 that Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, listen, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, the call of Numbers 33 and 34 is our call, our charge. Yet, when you look around and you look inside, their failures are our failures too, aren't they? Again, the journey's long. We have too many days of that terrible kind that we talked about last week. We get tired and or angry because it's taking too long to find some rest. The more we walk, the more we see trouble and toil. And so what do we do? We get complacent. We compromise. We live double lives. We come here every Sunday and go through all the proper motions. But all we say and hear has little or nothing or no impact on what we do from Monday to Saturday. Outside those very doors, we live like Canaanites. We bow to fame, even if merely the high school fame of humiliating and bullying those who are a little bit different from us. We bow down to the God of comfort, spending time and effort to buy things that rust and whose batteries eventually die instead of serving one another in humility. However, 
Maybe this is not your case. Perhaps, however, life throws everything at you and you feel you're about to give up. You just don't have in you again to keep fighting. But then you read the Bible and you notice that God promises to provide you all you need for this life in His providence. Yet, here you are right now, ignoring what I'm saying because you're worried about the bills to pay or the chores you have to do tomorrow. He gave you the fruit of His Holy Spirit for you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But you feel, I think I've done enough. I'm too old. I've done my part. And then you enjoy your past successes and complain about kids these days. They have no respect. Just because they dare to not do things the way you always did. At this point, I think there's a question that should be bugging you. If I already know that Israel went to exile, and it does not look like I'm faring any better, what hope there is for me then? How can I persist when I realize I will always fail? That will lead us to our third and final point this night. Third, thirdly, our text promises us tonight that Jesus faithfully guarantees our inheritance. Again, Jesus faithfully guarantees our inheritance. How can we persevere in this life, we ask? How can we find rest in God if we are all doomed to compromise and get complacent? If all we have to show for in this life in terms of persistent is Darius McCollum, I have bad news for you. Finally, after 30 years dedicated to hijacking trains and buses, he was stopped for good. Even the ever-so-persistent Darius McCollum is now in exile in a forensic psychiatric hospital. And this is what we see, kind of, when we see the list of names in the last section of Numbers 34 from verses 16 to 29. If you read closely, you'll see that the section gives us names of the men appointed to lead the conquer and the vision of each tribe's allotted inheritance. And then we read about, we learn about the great Joshua, Caleb, Haniel, Kemuel, and Paltiel. And when you know what happens next, as great as some of them were, we realize that, as one friend of mine always says, our best men are men at best. They were supposed to lead Israel to rest, but even the great Joshua ultimately failed. We read in Hebrews 4 that if Joshua had, give them, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. This is not their rest. Joshua didn't do it. If Joshua had given them rest, we wouldn't need the rest of the Old Testament. But he didn't, didn't he? And this is why, as Hebrews says, God spoke about another day of rest later on. Fortunately, then, for us and for Israel, 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to conquer our inheritance for us. There was no time or space for complacency or compromise in his life. He opposed the idolatry of money when he cleansed the temple from those there seeking personal gain. He opposed the idolatry of power by constantly rebuking those who oppressed his people with their man-made laws. Yet, as one commentary explains, before you get too happy, Jesus' war against sin was not merely an external assault on those who worshipped idols. Otherwise, none of us would have survived. Because the truth is, we are all guilty of the same sins of Israel of old. We are all constantly bowing to the idols of this age. Thank God that Jesus came to judge, not to judge and condemn all sinners, but to bring them to his side. Because yes, he was the one who walked with sinners and tax collectors, but he did not do that to become like them. He brought them to his side turning spiritual Canaanites like you and me into his blessed inheritance, the children of Abraham, by faith. And then, he took the ultimate penalty that we deserved and received in his own flesh and bones the barbs and thorns of Numbers 33:55, wearing a crown of thorns and having his side pierced by a spear at the cross. There, at that cross, he was exiled from God's presence to pay the price for your idolatry, your compromise, and your complacency. By doing this, he guarantees then our inheritance. Jesus fulfilled all of God's standards of righteousness in his life and all God's demands of justice in his death. So this is the good news for you this night. If you put your faith in him, you will find in him what Moses, Joshua, Caleb, fame, fortune, comfort, money, a PhD, Pastor Larry, and certainly the future new associate pastor could never give to you. In Jesus... By grace and not by our efforts, you find a promised inheritance. Through Jesus, freely, you find rest. You see, last week, I said that at the end of our road, we find a person, not a place. Today, I tell you that through that person, yes, you also find a place. And your inheritance is a way better, is way better than a plot of dusty Palestinian land. Through Jesus, the borders of his kingdom expanded from all those lines drawn in Numbers 34 and now reach all four corners of the earth. Wherever you may roam in this land now, you can find a home if you find a small group of spiritual Israelites worshiping him through faith. But wait, there's more. 
what we have today, right now, this little moment of gathering with fellow believers, resting from our worldly cares by remembering God's grace and by sharing our burdens with one another is a mere rehearsal of the final place of rest and celebration. On that final day of rest, we will be together with Jesus on a new earth, under a new heaven. We will be with Him in a holy city, a glorious place where death will be no more. All blood, sweat, and tears from our toils will be wiped away. So take courage then, Christian, for Monday morning. Remember that your strength indeed is small, but in Him we find all the strength we need. Trust that He's your sword and shield for the fight against the compromises this world so eagerly tries to impose on you. Do not heed the riches and man's empty praise. Remember, He is your inheritance now and always. Tomorrow, When courage fades and you feel like giving up, again, as we all do and we all certainly will, tell out your soul the glories of God's word. That firm is his promise and his mercy is sure. Remember what you received through faith in Christ for free. In him, you have a glorious inheritance and purpose to live for Him, and to rest in Him, now and forever. Let us pray. Lead us, O God, we pray, to conform this world to Your kingdom of love, justice, and peace. Help us to live as the Lord requires, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you, our God. Keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, almighty God now and forever, and together your holy people say, Amen.